raising children, running a marathon, rehabbing from a painful injury that you got from running the marathon, sitting in traffic, standing in a line at Target on Saturday afternoon before Christmas, sitting in an hour and 50-minute service at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. All these activities have something in common, don't they? What do they require of us? Patience. I one time asked the congregation that. They said, caffeine. Yeah, in some shape or form, they take patience, perseverance, endurance. Whether it's teaching our children how to know the Lord or to run a 26.2-mile marathon or want to see your church grow in a healthy way, each of these things have a desired outcome in mind, an end goal, a destination, and they all require endurance. When we read in Scripture To be a follower of Jesus, we are called to live lives of endurance. Next time you run across words like steadfast, persevere, patience, or as the King James used to say, long-suffering. This is the charge to God's people to push forward, to press on, to not grow weary in doing good, for in due season... We will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 6, verse 9. But sometimes our patience can get tested, can't it? Sometimes our ability to endure actually gets fairly challenging. Sometimes it gets tested in ways that hit much closer to home than some of the examples that I just mentioned, where it gets more personal where we get tested so much that we can feel our energy depleting, frail and finite creatureliness more acutely, our utter inability to change circumstances we don't like in our life, which, given enough time, can make us all feel weary, tired, even discouraged. I remember counseling a sister that was going through a variety of difficult trials in her life. I was in counseling with her for about eight months. I remember she said this to my office, in my office, Blake, my ability to endure is fading away like water vanishing into sand. Can you identify with her in some way this morning? Is your ability to endure some hardship or affliction or some type of complicated relationship making you feel like your endurance is fading away like water into sand? Well, if that's you today, or maybe it might be you one day, we need to first be reminded of where our final destination is. If we're going to endure in the Christian life, just like running a race, you can't just be focused on where you're at right now. You've got to have an end goal in mind. 
So for the life of a Christian, whether you're 14 or 84, what is our final destination? What is the end goal of the Christian life? Where is it? Or what is it? Well, it's eternal life. It's life without end with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's beholding him face to face in all his glory and then reigning with him in all the redeemed in our new bodies, in the new heavens, the new earth, where righteousness dwells. But if that's the end game, how do we get there? How do we go from trusting in Christ today, Sunday, February 14th, 2021, to trusting Christ on the last day? What will empower us? What will sustain us? What will motivate us to do what Jansen read from Hebrews 12 a while ago? Where Hebrews 12.1 says, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, brothers and sisters, what I want to show you from Scripture this morning is that as we feed on God's Word by faith, God's Word keeps us faithful to the end. As we feed on God's Word by faith, His promises, His comforts, His instructions, and His warnings, His Word will keep us faithful to the end or the power thereof. Now, what is the end, though? Well, the end could be the day that the Lord takes you home to glory. In other words, he calls Blake Boylston's number up, turns the hourglass over and says, you're done. It's time to come home. Or he says that to Gunnar DeLay. Or he says that to Susan Hannon. It's time. Your time here is up. Or the end could be the day that the writer of Hebrews speaks of, the day that is drawing near. The day our Lord Jesus Christ comes to the earth for his bride, the church, the second coming of Jesus Christ. But this kind of begs the question, doesn't it? I like speaking to the skeptics in the room or the more pessimistic side of Christians. But why do we need to persevere in the faith? You ever asked that question before? Why? What's the big deal? I mean, can't we just coast in our relationship with Jesus? Put it in neutral? Not take this Christian life all that serious all the time? Can't we just attend church sporadically? You know, when it's convenient? Punch my time card on Sunday and just go about my business? Can't we just remain surface level in our relationships? You know, affirm one another? Not get too involved in each other's lives? I mean, won't that get too messy anyway when we find out each other's sin and suffering? I mean, isn't it sufficient to say, I gave my life to Jesus a long time ago? I was baptized. I walked down an aisle. Preacher signed my Bible and said, I'm good with Jesus. Isn't that sufficient to say I'm A-OK with God now? Well, how about a local church? Can a local church just live in the past? Talk about the good old days of a previous pastor, of a previous era, and that be enough? Well, that's what I want to focus on this morning. Endurance or perseverance 
in the Christian life. Now this morning, if you're gathering with us for the first time, or it's been a little while, it's going to look a little different. This morning will be a sermon that's more topical in nature. Uh, Instead of taking one passage of scripture and unfolding upon it for the next hour or so, we're going to be focusing in on a topic and looking at a host of scriptures. Uh, Today, and Lord willing, the remainder of the month of February, we're going to look at themes like endurance, trusting God through depression, and how God uses our suffering to comfort others in their suffering. So if you know someone who's going through something like that, or who might be interested in a topic like that, invite them to come to church. And if they can't make it, Tell them they can listen to it online on the podcast. And and my hope is the Lord would use the next few sermons to strengthen our faith so that we might finish our race and we might help others finish their race too. As Christians, we should care less about what Pastor Blake has to say and we should care a lot about what Jesus has to say on this topic. So what did Jesus say? about the connection between believing the gospel message and possessing enduring faith, or a faith that lasts. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. You can find that on page 489 and 490 in the chair Bibles provided. Mark chapter 4. Follow with me as I read Mark chapter 4, and this will be a passage we will launch off of that will help set the stage. Again, he, speaking of Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And when he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. 
When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Here in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching that famous parable. You might even say the parable of all parables. If you don't get this, you probably won't get the rest of them. The parable of the sower. And he says that some people will receive the word. They'll hear the gospel message, but they will only endure for a while. Luke's gospel actually says they'll only believe for a while. However, verse 17, it says when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. In other words, these people, when the price to be faithful to Jesus just gets too costly, their superficial faith will be revealed. The mask will come off. Then in the very next verse, Jesus describes some people who will hear the gospel message. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Here Jesus speaks about the choking effect or the spiritual poison that temptations in this world can perform on any man or any woman's soul. What's interesting, though, Jesus says, even things that seem harmless at first can actually become the very trap that destroys a person's spiritual life in the end. I mean, things like toys, stuff, sports, hobbies, A spouse, children, grandchildren, a successful career, a family inheritance, or even a decade or two of recreational fun in retirement. Did you notice that ambiguous phrase Jesus says? The desires for other things. He just doesn't tell us. He basically just says, even things that are good gifts that God gives us to enjoy, if we're not careful, they can become little gods. It's when our hearts are attached to things on earth in a way that our hearts should only be attached to things in heaven. And before we know it, if we're not careful, and God doesn't bring it to our minds, even these good gifts can define and shape us instead of a devotion to Christ. I mean, any one of these things, any of these things in our life can captivate our hearts more than the kingdom of God and more than the gospel. But what did Jesus teach? No one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But what I would like to do this morning is to fill in the blank with anything else. Either Jesus is your master or he's not. Whatever you are most devoted to in your life, behold, is our master. You see, endurance, finishing the race, keeping the faith, this is a call for perseverance in the Christian life. And as you read throughout the New Testament, Jesus' earliest disciples, the apostles, all began to say the same thing. For instance, let me take you through a uh, tour through the Bible. We see the Apostle Paul and other writers warn God's people against false teaching and false teachers who infiltrate the church to lead his people astray. Some even mention by name, Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.20. He describes them as men who made shipwreck of their faith. And don't forget Demas. He used to travel with Paul, used to go on the missionary trips with Paul, and then all of a sudden abandoned Paul, deuced out on him, left the ministry because he was in love with this present world, 2 Timothy 4.10. So we shouldn't be surprised when we open up the New Testament and read the ongoing kind of hit-on-repeat exhortations to be obedient, to be watchful, and to be diligent in our relationship with Christ. Listen to these samples of what we hear in the New Testament about how we are to be serious about our relationships with Christ. The Apostle James says in James 1.22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Jude says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's Jude 20 and 21. The writer of Hebrews that Jansen read from earlier instructs us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. Peter exhorts believers to be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1, 10. And then in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, we hear the repetitive theme that encourages saints undergoing persecution. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Revelation 14, 12. So if you're taking notes this morning, I've got three main points that kind of shape and outline to guide us on this topic of perseverance or endurance. Number one, perseverance reveals the truth about our spiritual state. Perseverance reveals the truth about our spiritual state. Number two, perseverance rests on God's promises to save us. Perseverance rests on God's promises to save us. And then number three, perseverance reminds us that this life isn't our final destination. Perseverance reminds us 
that this life isn't our final destination. Let's start with that first one. Perseverance reveals the truth about our spiritual state. So I need to not assume anyone in here knows what I'm speaking about, so I need to be extra clear. What does the doctrine or the teaching of the perseverance of the saints teach? What does it mean? If you ever hear that phrase or that doctrine, well, in Article 10 of our own church's statement of faith. So if you've joined this church, you're supposed to have read that. I've taught through it. But if you need to be refreshed, here is what it says. We believe that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and that they will, by his grace, persevere in active trust and obedience to Christ until they see him face to face. Believers may fall into sin by succumbing to temptation, thereby grieving the Holy Spirit, impairing their fellowship with Christ, bringing a reproach on his name, and incurring God's loving discipline. Yet they will be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. This enduring faith of believers distinguishes them from those who renounce Christ and prove not to be his. A persevering faith is evidence of God's election and love, which gives sure hope of eternal life with Christ. So, simply put, all true Christians will persevere in faith and never finally fall away. All true Christians will persevere in faith and never finally fall away. Now, for us to be good Bereans or discerners of what's being taught, we need to compare statements of faith with what the Bible teaches. So you should never affirm a creed or confession if it doesn't line up with Scripture. So let's look into the Bible now and see if that's true. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In other words, according to Jesus, there are only two gates you can walk through. Two paths of life that you can walk on that lead to two final destinations. You've got the narrow gate and walking on the narrow way, which is with Christ and through Christ, that leads to eternal life. And then there's the broad gate or the broad way. It's not trusting in Christ. It's trusting in something else, which leads to eternal destruction. Now, to help us this morning to understand which gate we've entered through, and which path we are currently on, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that you'll know both the state of someone's soul and the source of what they believe by the fruit that they bear. Starting in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Now, to be certain, Jesus is totally aware, and we should be too, that not everyone who claims to be a Christian 
is actually a Christian. Let me just do a little catechism for you. Before God, there's only two types of people. Children of God or children of the devil. Those who have been born again and those who are dead in their sin. Those who are adopted into the kingdom of light and those who are deceived and enslaved in the kingdom of darkness. There's only two. But humanly speaking, we have to understand there's a third category. There are people who think they are children of God. There are people who think they're going to make it to heaven, but in actuality, they're not. And these people are self-deceived. They are clinging to a righteousness that's not the righteousness of Christ. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe someone in your own family said a prayer, was baptized, walked down an aisle, will even go to church on Christmas and Easter, will even give a prayer before a Thanksgiving meal, but the rest of their life shows little to zero spiritual fruit. I think all of us can attest to many people in this Bible Belt nominal Christianity culture that think they are following Jesus, but they're basing that assurance on things that are not of Scripture. So, beloved, that's not here to unnerve you if you struggle with assurance of salvation, but it is to help you realize it's important to study the Scriptures to know what it means to follow Jesus and not simply your tradition or what you feel. You see, even among the crowds that followed Jesus from town to town, there were those who followed Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They even appeared to their fellow friends and family that they were following Jesus for a time. For example, we see a very disturbing verse in John chapter 6 as a good example about how you can be following Jesus for a time but not actually love Jesus from your heart. John 6 verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's a chilling verse to read, isn't it? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But you see, Jesus was not trying to draw a crowd. Jesus didn't have time for fanboys or fangirls. Jesus actually would turn up the volume on what it meant to follow him to expose the spiritual pretenders. In other words, when Jesus saw that the crowds were getting big at church, he would preach sermons that would empty the pews. Jesus had a powerful way of exposing Halloween Christians, wearing a moral and spiritual costume, but really, it's not who you are. When you read the Gospels, it becomes super apparent that Jesus did not soften the blow. He would actually speak some of his hardest and sharpest words when he knew that hypocrites were in the crowd. So, taking what Jesus said about false teachers and nominal believers, Paul himself said that there were false brothers that persecuted him. False brothers People who said they're a brother in Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26. Galatians 2, 4. So the reason I'm bringing this out to you is I want to show you from Scripture that it's super important that we rightly understand 
what it means to persevere in the Christian faith and at the same time realize there are people in your life today who think they are Christians that will one day walk away from the faith. And I don't want you to be shocked by it. I don't want you to be alarmed by it. It will grieve you, but you should not be surprised because Jesus said it would happen. So how does the doctrine of perseverance reveal to us the state of people's souls? Or more personally, how does this doctrine, how does this teaching reveal the truth about your soul and my soul this morning? Well, there are three things that Jesus and the New Testament writers say over and over again that will characterize true disciples. Number one, abiding faith. Number two, abiding obedience. And number three, abiding love. Abiding faith, abiding obedience, and abiding love. Now, I want you to note, I did not say a perfect faith. I did not say perfect obedience. Amen? Praise God. I did not say a perfect love, but it is an abiding one. It permanently lasts. It endures over the test of time. Say for an example, we took a road trip in August together as one big church and a few chartered buses and maybe private planes if you have them, and we went down to the Gulf. But coincidentally, We came down there during hurricane season, and a Category 5 hurricane was coming. And we had the choice to build a castle made of sand and a castle made of stone and hide within it. Which one do you think would be wisest to do? The castle of what? Stone. Now, the sand would be fun, but it would be no fun when the winds came. We would build a castle made of stone, right? The winds of the hurricane are going to blow away the things that don't have a strong foundation. That's what it's like on the day of judgment. When the hurricane winds of God's judgment comes, only those whose faith is in the right foundation will last. And in this life, God sometimes brings trials into our life to actually reveal those who are genuine and those who are not. He will test our faith. He will strengthen our faith. He will refine our faith. But he also exposes those who didn't have saving faith to begin with. You see, saving faith will bear fruit that abides. It will continue. And listen, it will even make progress over the course of time. Jesus said in John 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. But some of you here today are very confident in your salvation and you might be thinking, well, yeah, I I know I'll make it to the ends because I'm, I'm pretty disciplined. I'm a type A kind of guy or gal. It's my strength. It's my vigor that's going to make it to the end. I've got the spiritual muscles, the personal jet fuel to make it to heaven on my own. Well, beloved, if that's you here today, you need to be reminded, and I need to be reminded, that in one sense, it is your responsibility and my responsibility to persevere. There are imperatives in the New Testament. There are commands we are called to obey. 
And yet, on the other side of the coin, we can only persevere because God preserves us to persevere. Which leads to point number two, perseverance rests on God's promises to save us. Open your Bibles now to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, that should be on found page 523 in the chair Bibles, if you're using those. John chapter 10. Thank you guys for your patience and walking through a bunch of scriptures this morning. This will be one of those sermons you can look back on because there's a lot being vomited on you. John 10. Follow with me as I read verses 27 to 30. Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You see here in John chapter 10, really back in verse 11, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, his true disciples. Hence, that's why Jesus' sacrificial death for his sheep is the proof of his love for them. But Jesus' death for his sheep also guaranteed that Christ's sheep will hear his voice. You see, the sheep for whom Christ died is an unbreakable chain between those who he calls to himself. When Christ hung on that cross, he paid for the sins of every child of his. All that the Father has given to the Son in eternity past, Christ purchased their salvation. His sheep he laid down his life for. He guaranteed that it would be paid in full. But note, one of the things that Jesus paid for on the cross was for our sin of unbelief. He died for our sin of unbelief so that in salvation, he gives you the ability to believe. So all that the Father gives to the Son, Christ died for them. And because he died for them, he will call them to himself and give them the ability to follow him. You see, the atonement is directly connected to our perseverance. That's one of the most beautiful truths in John chapter 10. The body that hung on that tree, that died on that cross, rose again, demonstrating Christ's power over the grave. What does that mean for us today? That means that the hands of Jesus and the hands of our heavenly Father are stronger than all the powers of Satan, Sin and hell combined. If you knew the world champion arm wrestler who had never lost, wouldn't you put your money on him no matter who the opponent was? 
That's what putting your faith in Christ is like. He's got a perfect record. That's where our security is found. There is no one who has stronger hands than the hands of God. God's ability to keep us is stronger than our ability to leave him. God's ability to keep us is stronger than our ability to leave him. You see, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is directly connected to another important doctrine, the doctrine of eternal security, which teaches that those whom God the Father gives to the Son for eternal life can never be lost. John 17, verse 2 and verse 12. You know, some have even described the doctrine of eternal security. If you've grown up in Baptist circles, I think that was like the top three things you were taught, but you probably didn't know what it meant. Once saved, always saved. Well, that's true. If you continue to study Scripture accurately, God, by his omnipotent power, does keep everyone who truly believes in him. So that means this. A Christian's ability to persevere in the faith will ultimately be the result of God's promise to keep us. God's power sustaining and guarding us in all of our life from start to finish is a promise for all who believe. Or as Philippians 1 Verse 6 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see that the Bible tells us that everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him for their salvation receives every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And beloved, these spiritual blessings, these riches of God's grace are the fuel for our joy. This is what gives us hope right now. And will carry us on into eternity. Well, how do we know that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul speaks about all these spiritual blessings. Note what Paul tells us. He says that in Christ we are chosen before the foundation of the earth. We're predestined to be sons and daughters of God. We are forgiven and redeemed by God. And we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We literally become the dwelling place of God. Listen, for those of us who are trusting in Christ today, rest. Rest assured in this, that our Heavenly Father has not left out any good gift under the tree for any of His children. If you are in Christ this morning, you are more blessed here on earth because you have received the best heaven has to offer. His blessings are of an eternal nature. They're greater than any Christmas gift a spouse or a parent can give you because these gifts are still awaiting you when you enter glory. And beloved, one of the reasons why you and I can rest our pillows at night is because our God is immutable. He never changes You see, we as finite beings, we're inconsistent. We can be passionate for Jesus on Sunday and dull and dead as a doorknob on Monday. But God doesn't wake up in a good mood on Tuesday and a bad mood on Wednesday. No, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't get affected personally in the same ways we do. 
And guess what? God isn't dependent on anyone like we are. He is self-existent. He is eternal. He is infinite. And he is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. His perfect, righteous, all-powerful, enduring love is able to keep every child from falling away from him. That's the glorious news of amazing grace. You might be here today and you're feeling like you are steering the ship of your life. And you feel like wave after wave after wave is crashing into the boat. And you're sitting there trying to mend everything in the boat to keep you from sinking. But the reality is the ship you're standing on is the rock. It's our faithful God. He is holding you and I up from drowning in the water of unbelief. Sometimes it might appear, it might even feel like your salvation depends on you. But the opposite is true. It's the strength and the promise of God's grace that keeps us from drowning in unbelief. Now some of us, because we've been well taught, we already know that, right? And we would even affirm that God is in control of our life. But those hurricane winds may come when you least expect it. And sometimes we can act just like the disciples in the boat with Jesus, can't we? The winds get fierce, the water starts coming in, and we start acting like practical atheists. Our theology goes out the door, and we act like God doesn't even exist. We doubt, we grumble, we lose heart. Beloved, here's a spoonful of wisdom. I think we all need to drink from time to time. Do not forget in the dark times what God has revealed in the light. Do not forget in the dark times what God has revealed in the light. So here's a practical example. When something happens in your life and you're tempted to think you're going to drown in unbelief, God's done with you. Somehow he just slipped. You slipped out of his hands. Remember the promise of his word. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're married or living with someone who's speaking things that are not true and they're freaking out and they're anxious and they're afraid, at the right time with gentleness and love, say, I know this is hard, but you know from God's word, he said, I will never leave you. You see, if God has drawn you to himself, accepted you into his family through faith in Christ. That means your whole life, right now, tomorrow, and your last day, is barricaded by the angelic host. You can't escape him. Have you ever been playing like Monopoly or a card game or something with your kids, and they're trying to do their best to beat you, but you like know all the rules to the game. You know all the shortcuts. You've done this like a million times. You know exactly where the card is. God's got this whole thing under control. There's no part of the game of your life. There's no part of your life that he doesn't know exactly what we need and when we need it. In other words, there is nothing in our lives that can happen to us unless it has first been sifted through the hands of God. Take heart in that, beloved. You see, the good news of Christianity 
was birthed in the emergency room of suffering and sin. When the incarnate Son of God walked this earth, he took on a human nature like us. He experienced human weakness like us, and yet he never sinned. Christ would suffer at the hands of evil men and be forsaken by his Father at the cross. And at the cross, Christ willingly bore the wrath of God for our sins, for the sins of all who would trust in him, securing our hope of being accepted by him. Christ's pain, Christ's suffering for us gave us full access to God. And now, if you put your trust in him, turning from your sins, you will be resurrected as the resurrected Christ, and we become the children of God. Maybe you're here today. You're not even sure if you're a Christian. Or maybe you're honest enough to say, yeah, I I don't think I'm a Christian. And you might be thinking, you know, this Christianity stuff sounds good, but my life is just way too messy, way too complicated. I mean, it sounds good, but my life is messed up. Remember what I just said. Christianity was birthed in the emergency room of sin and suffering. You see, the good news of Christianity is Christ doesn't say, clean up your act, get your life together, and then come to me. No, Christ says, stop trying to pick up your life and let me transform your life. Come to me with all your dirt, sin, doubt, anxiety, shame, and guilt, and I will make you clean. I will transform your heart. I will carry your burdens and your sorrows. And I will give rest to your souls. That's the good news of Christianity. That's the good news of the gospel. So wherever you're at in life today, come to Christ. Believe upon him. Trust in him. He is a worthy shepherd to follow. And listen, Jesus' life of endurance and trust His sinless life of obedience through what he suffered really paved the way for us. It guaranteed that Christ has already gained us access to God. So whatever suffering you have to endure in this life, Christ already took on the worst suffering. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of God. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And you will endure every trial until he calls you home. Isn't this exactly why we love Romans 8, 28? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't only talk about these doctrines of eternal security and perseverance and God's sovereignty in like purely academic ways. You've got to get your theology right But then at some point, you've got to apply that theology. You've got to live it out. You've got to actually have some teeth to your Christian life. How do you take these things that I've said this morning and apply them to your life? How do we take what we've heard from the pages of Scripture and soak into the veins of our hearts? Well, it always begins here. Jesus, who is our great high priest, has promised He will not lose any of his own because Jesus is always praying for them. Isn't that a glorious truth today? 
when your prayer life and my prayer life is lagging, it's like child's play. We're basically mumbling and bumbling to him. Did you know even on our worst day, Jesus is praying for us? On our best day, he's praying for us. On your sickest day, he's praying for us. No matter what you face in this life, he's going to continue to intercede for you until you are in his presence. As Puritan Thomas Watson said, or T. Watt, he said, it will not frighten a Christian to have all the signs of death in his body when he can see all the signs of grace in his soul. So my dear saints who are here today, who are older, or maybe you're watching this, what do we call this thing again? Zoom? Podcast? Video thing? Anyway, if you're listening and you feel the feebleness of your body or even the failing of your memory, you might be tempted to think, you know, maybe my faith is not strong enough. Maybe it's not good enough for Christ to keep me in my latter days. Well, if that's you here today, beloved, remember Isaiah the prophet. Even to your old age, Isaiah 46, 4, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. And to the saints who are in here who are weary, you're just tired in your faith, and, and you're asking, is it worth to keep praying even when I don't see fruit? Even if I don't see change? Or those who are struggling with doubts here today, because Christians do doubt. Real Christians will have real doubts enter their life, asking, is God's word really worth trusting my whole life on? Or if some of you are filled with grief, the death of a loved one has not left you. In fact, these times of year during holidays and cold months, it begins to cause sorrow that's almost unbearable. And you're asking, how will I make it another day? How will I make it to believe that his mercies are new every morning? Remember again, Christ's words to Peter. Before one of Peter's worst hours when he denied Christ. We read in Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus is praying for the weak and the strong. He's praying for the pastor and the member in the pew. So when our prayer life is lagging, he is holding us up so that we continue to pray to him. You see, everything, beloved, from our joy to our job, to the unity in our church, to the community we live in, from the temptations that we face to the destination of our eternal dwelling place. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working together in perfect harmony to complete their salvation in your life. And beloved, because the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, this work of redemption is 100% guaranteed. There's no doubt in the Trinity's mind they will accomplish their purpose in the world. Every sinner who receives Christ is perfectly secure in his love because his blood was shed for them. John Flavel once said, did Christ finish his work for us? 
then there can be no doubt, but he will also finish his work in us. You see, the payment is in full, Christian. Brothers and sisters, this is our confidence. This is our hope. This is our joy. But this also should remind us that this life isn't all there is. Which leads to our last point, point number three. Perseverance reminds us that this life isn't our final destination. So how can we take these lofty truths? The call to persevere reveals whether we're all, we are one of his. Our perseverance rests on God's promises to keep us as Christ is praying for us. Well, perseverance also reminds us that we're not home yet. We're still traveling through enemies' territory. How do we apply this to our life? Let me just give you the most bottom-shelf answer. And just lean in on this one, okay? Quitting is not an option. Throwing in the towel on Jesus has got to be removed off the table. Just like when I do premarital counseling, if you come into my office wanting to get married, you better throw the D word out of your vocabulary. I don't care how bad it gets, we are in this till death do you part. And the same wing goes with following Jesus. Quitting, throwing in the towel, doubting his goodness, we have got to repent of and trust him. So like any runner, we cannot quit until we reach the finish line. That's why the Bible tells us that the Christian life is like a race, that we run with endurance, like a marathon, not like a sprint. And to that end, we all need fresh reminders from one another every time we get together that God's steadfast love is better than life. To hear that time and time again through Brownie leading us in song or Ian leading us in song or through anyone who reads scripture and prays or through the hallway conversation or through the text throughout the week, we need to be told that time and time again. So here's how you personally and us collectively can do this together. Number one, learn how to fight for faith with God's word. Learn how to fight for faith with God's word. Now we've spent almost 50 minutes looking at two glorious doctrines from a host of scriptures, the perseverance of the saints and eternal security. And the reason we did that, though, was not to give you more data for your mind to be filled up like a, a hard drive on a computer just to kind of store away. No, this purpose, the reason why we are focusing on this today, so that we might know our God and understand what he has done for us in Christ. So that means this. I want to encourage each one of you. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. Do not be intimidated by your Bibles. Do not be intimidated by your Bibles. Purchase a good study Bible that will help you grow deeper. Read good Christian books that cover areas of theology you just want to learn and grow in. Bring your Bibles to church and take notes during the sermon. That's not to like scratch my pastoral itch. That's for your benefit so that when you get home, you can talk about the sermon with those you love. You, when you talk about the sermon or you talk about God's word, you find that things were said in the sermon that maybe you forgot. 
or they didn't touch you in the same way it did someone else, but it brings something to mind. I think about starting a Bible reading plan that meets your current circumstance in life. You know, read a chapter of the Old Testament in the morning. Read a chapter of the New Testament in the evening. Some of you might even consider taking an online Bible class or a seminary class. Uh, if you're a woman, you're invited to go to the women's Bible study on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. They're currently going through Philippians at a deep level. It'd be a great way to study your Bibles. Beloved, my exhortation basically is this. Find any means you can to grow in your knowledge of Scripture. Do not be complacent with your present knowledge of Jesus. Listen, your knowledge of Jesus and my knowledge of Jesus is like taking a little doctor's cup, filling it up with water, and then I say, well, listen, there's a whole Pacific Ocean. Keep, keep digging, because there's a lot more to know about him. You can't walk by faith if you don't know what God has said. Jesus said, man shall live by bread alone, or not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. Number two, pursue others to encourage them and allow others to encourage you. The writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, have you ever asked yourself the question, why does the local church exist? Why can't we just have Bible studies in our living room? Listen to Grace to You sermons by John MacArthur across the country, and that just be enough? Well, in part, God's kind reminder to us when we gather each week as a local church is that we are not alone in the Christian life. All of us, the local church, with people of different backgrounds, Different testimonies, different spiritual gifts, different ages, different jobs, different personalities, each of us with different struggles with sin and weaknesses are all designed by God to teach us how to rely on one another. It's all built there. God sovereignly wires us all so differently in order to complement where we're lacking where we need growth. So really, it's important to be reminded that we need each other. God has given pastors as gifts to his church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to give you a godly example to imitate. God's given us older saints who can give us wisdom to younger believers. God has given mature marriages to encourage newlyweds and those married couples who are really struggling and trying to figure this whole marriage thing out. God has given single men and single women the time and flexibility to meet certain needs that otherwise might get neglected if we didn't have you. Uh, brothers and sisters, the point I want to make here is no one is exempt from needing encouragement, including your pastor. Let me just give you some secrets if you don't know this. Pastors can be some of the most weary and loneliest people in the church. Now, I don't feel that way because I feel like you love me. I feel like you're kind and you care for my wife. But I do think if I don't tell you and inform you, you could forget. I need encouragement. Every pastor needs encouragement. I pray that CCBC would be a place 
where we can encourage pastors both here and abroad. My hope is if God prospers our ministry in any fold, I would love our church to have the facilities and the money and the people to minister to pastors who are tired and weary. Right now, I've been on the phone with pastors in Turkey and Maryland, here locally, uh, and various other places around the country, and they're tired, they're weary, and they need someone to encourage them. And I would love our church, as God prospers us, as God blesses our ministry in so far as he wants to, that we would be a church that opens our doors to pastors, giving them encouragement, writing them letters, sending them an email, or having them have, have them come preach for me. And y'all talk about how much better of a preacher they are than me. You know, I want to bring the best in this pulpit so that I'm forgotten and that God's kingdom can go forth in other churches. But beloved, don't forget your pastors. We're in the front lines with you and our hands get weary too. You see, isolation from fellowship in the local church is spiritual suicide. Isolation from fellowship in the local church is spiritual suicide. Listen, if you don't get anything from the sermon, don't miss this. You cannot live the Christian life alone. You can't have real, authentic Christian community either if you're not willing to get vulnerable with each other. So let me step on some toes. If you're full of anxiety and depression, shame or guilt, fear of the future, bitterness against others, regret from sins of your past, you are not going to persevere very far if you don't open up your junk to other people. That's what the body of Christ is there for. Jesus is the one who says, I can heal you, I can restore you, but we are his hands and feet. We are the one organism on planet earth that can show the love of Christ by the gospel we proclaim and his spirit and his love working through us. So if you're thinking, Pastor Blake, what can I do to be used of God? How can I serve? I'm glad you asked. Open up your schedule. Open up your home. Open up your wallet. Open up your Bible and open up your heart. Let me say that again. Open up your schedule. Open up your home. Open up your wallet. Open up your Bible and open up your heart. In other words, open up your life. Fling open your life to love people, to encourage them, and help them finish the race well. The essence of discipling one another is not merely a classroom exercise or listening to a sermon. That might start there, but the essence of discipling one another is opening up your life to do spiritual good to one another. If you're a member here at CCBC, I want to challenge each one of us here, try to find my my last thing I want to show you. I want to challenge each one of us to become very familiar with our membership directory. Now, I printed mine out from our uh, planning center app, and I have a picture of every covenant member in our church. Your name, your email, your phone number, all 90 of you right here. On Wednesday afternoons, me and Jansen Lester, the pastoral intern, we pray through 10 people. We start alphabetically, and we pray for 10 people at a time. We read the passage I'm preaching on, or whoever's preaching, and we pray for 10 people at a time. We do that because God, first of all, commands us to pray, and he honors those prayers. But secondly, it warms our affection for this church. 
And so I pray that you would begin taking initiative to study that membership directory, carry it around in your Bible. I mean, don't leave it out so people around Fort Smith have their information, but put it in your Bible. And I would encourage you, go down the list and circle the people you don't know. Circle the people you've maybe never even said hello to. And I want to challenge you to reach out to them and tell them you're praying for them, that you want to encourage them. Have them in your home. Maybe even go down the list, and if you notice there's a face you haven't seen here in a while, reach out to them. Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. You doing okay? Is there anything I can pray for? Hey, you want to come over for dinner? I'd just love to get to know you. Listen, that's what a covenant community is all about. It's not stalking. It's not being weird. You can be weird. Just don't be weird. But be normal. But that's how we begin to grow deeper and encourage one another in the faith. And as a pastor, this is 90% of my, my week, other than preparing and teaching and preaching and counseling, it's finding out who I haven't seen in a while, who's weary, who's hurting, who's straying, who's being caught in sin, who needs a word of encouragement. I'm walking down that list and I'm emailing people just to see how you're doing. I'll challenge everyone to do that. Number three, look forward to the life to come. Look forward to the life to come. Many of us think heaven is really far away. Like it's as far as Arkansas to Africa. You know, it's super a long ways from now. Brothers and sisters, James chapter 4 says, Our lives are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Hebrews 13, 14 says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So brothers and sisters, if God has given you life, If the hourglass of your life has not been turned over yet and you are still breathing and I am still breathing, that means this, we have a mission to fulfill while God keeps us alive on this earth. We have a gospel to tell others. We have believers we can invest in and disciple. We have resources we can be generous with and we have the hope of eternity before us where there will be no more tears, no more sad goodbyes, No more regrets of the past. No more chronic pain. No more division. No more betrayal. No more injustice. No more sin. No more evil. No more wars. No more suffering. No more cancer. No more dementia. No more disappointments. No more depression. No more divorce. No more infertility. And no more death. Where new bodies are prepared for us. And the reward for faithfulness awaits us and fellowship with Christians who've died before us. And most importantly, beloved, we'll no longer be strangers and pilgrims in an enemy's land. We will be home. You might consider praying this prayer that a Puritan once said, Oh God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. A little saying that me and Julie came up with years ago has become a little catchphrase in our house. When we lose sight of eternity and perseverance, it goes like this. In a little while, this will be a long time ago. In a little while, raising children will be a long time ago. In a little while, fighting this particular sin will be a long time ago. Saying goodbye to a loved one will be a long time ago. Being tempted to be afraid one day will be a long time ago. Beloved, this life is going to go like that. In a little while, this will be a long time ago. 
I conclude with an old brother in him that I think captures the truths we've heard today. Our rest is in heaven. Our rest is not here. Then why should we tremble when trials are near? Be hushed, our sad spirits, the worst that can come, but shortens the journey and hastens us home. It is not for us to be seeking our bliss and building our hopes in a region like this. We look for a city which hands have not piled. We long for a country by sin undefiled. The thorn and the thistle around us may grow. We would not lie down even on roses below. We ask not our portion, we seek not a rest, till in glory forever with Christ we are blessed. Let trial and danger our progress oppose. They'll only make heaven more sweet at the close. Come joy or come sorrow, whatever may befall, a home with our God will repay us for all. With a scrip on the back and staff in the hand, we march on in haste through an enemy's land. The road may be rough, but it cannot be long. Let us smooth it with hope and cheer it with song. Let's persevere together and let's do that till Christ calls us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would strengthen weak hands and weak knees and cause us to persevere yet another day in trusting you. Lord, teach us how to open up our lives to one another, to encourage one another, to reach out and, and, and love one another, to speak a word in season. Lord, I pray that CCBC would be an encouraging place for both members and visitors, but also pastors. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.